Hi, I'm your host, Mo Litsky, and the CEO of Prime Quadrant. You're about to hear a conversation from our Lunches with Legends series, where we connect with some of the most illustrious business and investment leaders around the world. To learn more, check out our website, lunchswithlegends.com. Now, without any further ado, I'd like to introduce our very special guest today, the legendary Dr. Mark Mobius. Dr. Mark Mobius is regarded as, uh, certainly by many, as the founding father of emerging market investing. He has spent over 40 years and managed over $50 billion in emerging and frontier markets. Prior to uh, launching Mobius Capital Partners, Mark spent over 30 years with Franklin Templeton Investments, where he was executive chairman of the Templeton Emerging Markets Group. Um, Mark has also been a key figure in the developing international policy for emerging markets, serving on the World Bank's Global uh, Corporate Governance Forum, its private sector advisory group, and as co-chairman of its Investor Responsibility Task Force. As well, he's a member of the Economic Advisory Board of uh, the International Finance Corporation and, and serves on various other boards. Mark um, has, uh, particularly his extraordinary depth in emerging markets have made him a regular uh, on global networks such as Bloomberg, CNBC, MSNBC, and CNN, and he has been the recipient of numerous industry awards such as the Lifetime Achievement Award uh, in Asset Management. The 50, he's been recognized as one of the 50 most influential people uh, and one of the top, uh, top 10 money managers of the 20th century. Furthermore, he's the only legend that we've ever hosted whose fans produced an illustrated comic book about him called Mark Mobius, an illustrated biography, which has been translated into six different languages. Mark himself has authored at least 13 books that I'm aware of. Um, some of my favorites include, you know, Invest for Good, Passports for Profits, The Investor's Guide to Emerging Markets. And most recently, he completed another jewel, which I am uh, really glad to have finished over the weekend, entitled The Inflation Myth. The Wonderful World of Deflation. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to welcome our very distinguished guest, uh, Dr. Mark Mobius. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for that incredible introduction. I really feel very humbled by that. Thank you very much. Yeah, we're the ones who are humbled, but, <laughs> but really glad to have you. So maybe let's start at the beginning. You know, you grew up in Long Island, from what I understand, you started studying art at Boston University, then went off to study psychology at University of New Mexico. How did a nice boy from Long Island get into the far-flung corners of the world, and why did emerging or frontier markets appeal to you? Well, you know, when I graduated from MIT, it really strange because I've been a professional student. As you mentioned, I've been to many universities, studied many universities, and uh, when I got my PhD at MIT, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. But I knew one thing, as a result of my study in Japan, I had spent uh, a few months, three, four months in Japan under a Syracuse University scholarship. Uh, I was bitten by this bug, by this culture shock of being in Japan. This would be in the 60s. Right. Uh, and of course, in those days, Japan was an emerging country. Of course, no one talked about emerging countries those days. It was the underdeveloped or the poor and so forth. The emerging market uh, name came in 1987. Uh, but uh, at that time, I was really hooked on Japan and wanting to get back. And that's how I ended up. I ended up going to Japan and getting a job as a researcher, as a survey researcher, which was 
more or less in my line. You know, I had the training in social psychology and economics. So that's how it began. And that was uh, the beginning of a big adventure, which took me for, to uh, Korea, to Thailand, and to Hong Kong and all over Asia. And finally, I ended up in Hong Kong, started my own business, and then got into the securities business. So uh, that's really the history of my life in the sense that I became an expatriate. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> well, so now you've been at this for 40 years. Um, how much has investing generally changed since you first started in the 80s? And, and how has investing in emerging markets specifically changed since then? Well, investing has changed dramatically because you must remember uh, when I was working with John Templeton, he always talked about looking globally for opportunities. But in those days, you really could not invest in any of the Latin American markets except Mexico through ADRs. Uh, Asia was completely closed except for Japan and Hong Kong uh, and Singapore. And Latin America was pretty much closed as well because you had socialist governments, you had dictatorships, and they, there just was no opportunity for people to invest in these countries. So it's really changed dramatically in the years since 1987 as these markets opened up. And most importantly, and most significantly, and here we have to thank the World Bank, the IFC and these organizations, because they told these countries, look, if you want loans from us, and if you wanna grow, you gotta adopt a market economy. Mm -hmm. And that was the secret to tremendous growth in these countries. And of course, our ability to go in and invest because they developed a market economy with the stock market, with the bond market, and so forth. So it's big, big changes have taken place. Hmm. And so, so again, just to contextualize those changes and maybe to dive into the opportunity set, you know, when you started investing in emerging markets, right, the Soviet Union is behind the Iron Curtain, China and India were much poorer countries than they are. Latin America, like you said, it was dominated military dictatorship reigns. Um, one could argue that the potential in these markets at that point was extraordinary, right? And then when we look at the last 10 or so years where emerging markets seem to have underperformed US or North American equities, is that a signal that the opportunity set today is weaker than it was then? Or, or is it something else in play? And, and how do you see the opportunity set going forward? Well, it's a very, very key question. There's something else at play. Uh, you must remember, when we started the emerging market funds in 1987, it was there was a clear differentiation between emerging market countries and developed countries. So in other words, uh, there were very few emerging market companies listed in New York or London. They were, particularly in London, there were a few, but not many. So if you wanted to invest in emerging markets, you had to go to these emerging markets and invest. Then what happened is that more and more of these emerging market companies got listed in the US and uh, London and the developed market markets. And more importantly, many of the companies, American companies, British companies, European companies began to invest and sell their products in emerging countries so that if you looked at their breakdown of sales or their breakdown of profits, you'll see in some cases, the majority or at least over 50% of their earnings was from emerging countries. 
So, mm -hmm. so we have a situation. You have to ask the question: Okay, why did the U.S. market outperform the emerging markets index in the say the last ten years? Of course, things are changing now, but the emerging markets are now coming ahead. But the reality was that because many of these companies in the S&P or in the U.S. index were actually having a big part of their earnings from emerging countries, and therefore that drove their profits. Hmm. Interesting. And how? I mean, you you're, you mentioned that that's changing now. Maybe in the in the backdrop of the coronavirus or the pandemic, how has that affected emerging markets? And what unique risks or opportunities has that created? Uh, yeah, the coronavirus uh, situation has really created an incredible, uh, dramatic change in many of these countries because with the lockdowns, it became necessary to have uh, deliveries. In other words, internet selling has boomed in these countries. And the good news is that uh, these countries now have more and more internet connections and a large part of the populations have, of course, most people have a simple cell phone, uh, even in the poorest countries, but more and more have the smartphones, which have dramatically increased their ability to access various apps and various other facilities. So mm -hmm. the coronavirus situation has accelerated uh, the participation of these companies and these countries and people into the internet uh, spectrum. Mm -hmm. So for example, uh, before this coronavirus situation, FinTech was beginning to make headway in these countries. But now with the coronavirus situation with people restricted and the, the necessity to transfer money and to make payments online, the, uh, the FinTech revolution has really hit these countries. So more and more people have access uh, to uh, money, so to speak, whereas previously they never had a bank account. Right, right. And, and let me actually take that same question, but take it from a slightly different perspective. Um, you have the benefit of, of a global view. And, you know, so could you potentially share with us how investors, investors who are sitting in India or China or perhaps even South America, are looking at the investment world differently than the way that we in North America might be looking at it? In other words, are they thinking about risk and opportunities in any any differently than we may be? Oh, yes. Mo most definitely, they do look at it differently in the sense that uh, very often they're suspicious of, the, of investing in their own country. Uh, hmm. Of course, that's changing now. More and more are getting involved in the local markets. But people with big amounts of money, I'm talking about millionaires and others in these countries, would tend to want to be in the U.S., or in London, or in Switzerland, or here in Dubai, uh, to sort of uh, have some nest egg uh, that would escape uh, any uh, change in government in their own country, and then therefore risk the loss of these assets. Uh, now, of course, that varies from one country to another, and the growth of these local markets is so good that more and more locals are investing in their own market. But there is definitely a fear among the very rich to be locked in their own country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so as, as we think about 
um, which is, if I'm hearing you correctly, there is a, um, a maturation process that's emerging internally and therefore it's attracting internal capital. So, but for us who are sitting in North America, where, where do you see the, among that uh, cohort, where do you see the greatest opportunity set today? In other words, are you still able to find opportunities where others aren't looking like in what markets or where would be the most compelling market sectors or strategies that are perhaps being ignored uh, by investors in developed economies? Well, in terms of sectors, uh, I would say the impact of the internet and uh, the, the technology that has hit these countries provides tremendous opportunities because you have traditional, let's say retail companies are now for the first time selling online. And that's creating an incredible boost to their earnings uh, and profitability. So this is one very, very big opportunity for people who want to invest in these countries. Because whereas let's say in Canada, the US, Amazon is pretty well established and so forth. But in some of these other countries, that kind of Amazon type company is just beginning to develop. It's developing very fast, but provides an incredible opportunity. So in terms of sectors, I would say uh, you'd have to look at the technology impact, whether it be a traditional industry or a strictly online uh, kind of company, uh, but you've got to consider that. Then in terms of uh, countries or areas, obviously Asia is the biggest in terms of emerging markets. And then when they, within Asia, China is the obvious choice, but India is coming up very fast. And I would say India uh, probably provides more opportunities. And in fact, our portfolio, the largest uh, country allocation is India, not China, not any other country. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, could you maybe give some examples like whether within India or, or other markets that you are have high conviction bets in? Could you talk a little bit about the nature of, you know, more than just generally technologies or anything else that you could speak to or, or the evolution of, of um, the capital markets that's occurring there? Uh, yeah, well, just give an example. Let's say in India, um, we're not, we're of course in, invested in a software company that's providing software for enterprise uh, all over India. Uh, but then we're also in, invested in a company that makes pipes and tubes. Uh, because the infrastructure spending and spending on housing, for example, in India is growing at a very fast pace. So this company is doing very, very well in that space. Uh, mm -hmm. so th those are two examples of where, you know, where uh, in some of the traditional industries, but we're also in the technical side of things as well. In Brazil, we've invested in a company that does uh, Amazon type sales, online sales. They're affiliated with one of the big uh, department store chains, supermarket chains in the country. And now you're seeing, and by the way, that's a good example of where you have the traditional company that has stores all over the country. And now you have a new entity that's creating an Amazon type uh, service and putting these together will really power uh, the company going forward. And so let me ask you, um, question a little differently. Um, the, you know, what have you found to be most 
over your long career, what have you found to be most difficult about investing in the markets in which you're investing? And, and it may be easiest to think about it from the perspective of your instructive mistakes or the greatest lessons that you learned, perhaps the hard way, you know, from investing in the markets in which you've uh, participated and benefited from. Uh, well, you know, it's not only emerging markets, but it's uh, markets all over the world. In looking at companies, the most difficult thing is to understand the management and to uh, get a detailed look at how the company is managing, who, who is actually controlling the company, who is actually driving the company, and uh, can you trust these people? In other words, can you find out their ability to manage and to properly uh, strive for growth in the company? Uh, that is the most challenging thing. I mean, you can look at balance sheets, you can look at uh, all kinds of uh, reports, but it's only when you get insight into the management that you can really uh, make a success of your investment. And as, of course, you can look at so many examples, not only in emerging markets, but in the developed countries where uh, the management was crooked, they stole from the company, and it resulted in a big disaster uh, for the company, or they were just mismanaging and in not informing shareholders properly about what was happening. So it's interesting, you know, very often we go into uh, potential clients in America or Europe and they say, oh God, you know, emerging markets, is it safe? I mean, they cheat, uh, they steal, is it a problem? And then of course I was recently in Germany talking to an investor there and I, I, you know, they had a big scandal, Wirecard. I don't know if you're familiar with that scandal in Germany. And I said, what about Wirecard? <laughs> they had nothing to say. Of course, the Germans, the German uh, gentleman I was talking to, he said, that wasn't us. That was the Austrians. The Austrians <laughs> are in there. <laughs> so, so this is, I would say, the biggest, biggest challenge we have, which is why we always emphasize uh, the culture of the company. You know, we have what we call ESG plus C. Uh, mm -hmm. Environmental, social, governance, governance very important, and culture. In other words, what is the culture of the company? That's very, very important. And how do you how do you apprise that? And how does that help you uh, identify good value or bad value? Like when you're looking at those cultures, cultures are different in every country, in every company, in every jurisdiction. How how are you able to apprise a culture that's actually creating value versus a culture that's not? Well, usually first stop is to look at the board of uh, directors. Who is on the board of directors? Uh, are they independent? Are they truly independent? Are there some women on the board? Are there people on the board that represent uh, different sectors of the society? That's one thing we look at. And then we try to assess directly or indirectly, what is the morale of the company? What is the culture? Uh, do the workers feel engaged with the company? Do they feel that they're part of the, the company's achievements and are, are really truly part of the, uh, the environment of the company? So that's another thing we look at. And very often, the only way you can get that information is by visiting mm -hmm. the company. And that's one big disadvantage we have during COVID, that we're not able to visit companies. But we can assess a lot on the phone and on interviews like this, 
where we speak to people at, on the Zoom or at some other method. Uh, but I would say that that is critical. And how much of that assessment do you think is is gut that an instinct that you've developed over many years, uh, or how much of that is sort of, you know. Uh, scalable to others that could go out and do these trips and meet with this management and actually run a checklist and say, yep, 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 yep. How, yeah. how, how would you think about that? Well, that's an interesting question. I think, you know, it's true that given the thousands of interviews I've had with managements and the visits I've made, uh, you get a sort of a feel when you walk into a company that, you know, something may not be uh, right in one direction or other. And I think that experience helps me a lot. But I would say anybody can do it if they're a good reader of, um, of people and environments, if they're sensitive to what's happening, uh, they usually can do is just, just as good a job without necessarily having a long experience doing it. Hmm. Okay, so let me, let me actually dig in a little bit because you've said a couple of things here that um, I want to peel back the onion on. Uh, one, you've obviously introduced, you know, ESG plus C. You've talked a little bit about that it's no longer balance sheets and kind of fundamentals. I mean, you're somebody that worked with John Templeton and so who, my understanding, has employed a historically value-oriented approach. Have, you know, the various uh, trends that you've talked about, which is, you know, exponential growth in technology, uh, increased sensitivity around governance and, and ESG in general, um, heightened valuations, low interest rates. Have some of these changed your views on what it means to find and measure value? And when you go into a company other than assessing the, the culture and the governance and so on, how do you figure out what's a good company and what's good value for that company? That's a great question. But let me remind you that before we even step into a company, we've looked at the balance sheet, we look at the profit and loss statement going back five years or more. So we've done the homework in terms of the accounting. Uh, and uh, if the company does not meet our criteria, we probably won't even go to see them right. in that sense. Uh, right. With a few exceptions, but that's generally, uh, so you must remember the groundwork is very critical. It's only uh, when you finish that, then, then you look at these other factors, cultural factors, ESG and so forth and so on. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, there's been a sea change in valuations. Um, when I was working with John Templeton, first and foremost, we would look at the price-earnings ratio. That was uh, the be-all and end-all evaluation. Of course, we'd look at price of book, we'd look at balance sheet, so forth. But you know, price-earnings was the sort of key indicator. Now I don't look at that at all. <laughs> Why? Because interest rates have come down so dramatically uh, that uh, the PE begins to lose its meaning. Uh, for example, if you have an interest rate of 5%, you should take the reciprocal of five, five into one would be 20. So you could justify a PE ratio of 20 times. Mm -hmm. If the interest rates are one or less from what we're seeing now, you can justify a PE of 100 times. And of course, if it's zero, no, no interest rates or negative, then the interest rates can be sky high. So uh, I found that it's not a good idea to focus on PE. 
What we focus on now is return on capital or return on assets. Uh, because with a return on assets of let's say 20% or more, you know that this company can produce earnings going forward. And then combine that with a look at their balance sheet to make sure that the debt equity is below 50%, let's say, and combine that with growth, whether it be revenue growth or earnings growth, if the company has a record of growth in earnings, then you're in pretty good shape. In other words, you can, with those factors, you can do fairly well and then go progressing and going into other factors surrounding the company. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it's true that our views have changed pretty dramatically. And of course, another thing that um, has influenced us is a whole new generation of people who are looking further ahead than we did in the old days, let's say. Because in the old days, we were always looking through the real rear view mirror. mirror. Mm-hmm. We look at the, hundred, uh, the, the uh, history of the company and we said, okay, uh, they've done pretty good in the past and in the future, they'll probably do as well. Now, there's a whole generation of people who say, hey, Tesla is a great concept. I'm going to invest in Tesla, even though they're losing money. And uh, that's a big, big change that we've seen in the markets. Now, I'm not not saying I'm completely converted to the idea of buying companies that are losing money, but uh, there's no question that's a new force in the markets and probably says a few things. Well, first of all, it says there's a whole generation of people who are not afraid of the future. Because you must remember John Temple and, and the people who developed the price earnings ratios and other ratios that we used were children of the depression. They were always afraid of what might happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, the new generation has got enough food, enough clothes on their back, and are really not afraid of the future. And that, that is a big, big change. And that added to that is the fact that you have a whole new supply of money <laughs> mm-hmm. called cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. So if you ask me, what is the money supply in the world today? Nobody knows. We know how much dollars is out there, but we have no idea of what's happening in the cryptocurrency world and of course other currencies around the world. So I think that's another big change that's taken place. I wanna, I'm gonna come back to cryptocurrencies in a moment, but before we do, I just wanna understand. So if, if, the, if um, price earning ratios, if earnings don't really matter, are, are you adjusting your return expectations as well? In other words, like if, if let's just say a company's trading at 50 or 100 times earnings or whatever it is, but it has a bright future. Are you readjusting your bogey, your hurdle, your expectations of returns from those uh, from those investments? And 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 do you think like dividends are completely going away, going the way of the dodo bird? How how are you thinking about you know returns and cash flows from from um, public companies as we have seen them until now? Uh, by the way, I'm glad you mentioned dividends because one of the uh, gold standards I would say is a company that has let's say a return on capital of 20% or more and is paying a dividend. 
and is paying increasing dividends. Mm -hmm. That's a gold standard as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but it is true that we're not, uh, uh, I don't care what the PE is because if a company is growing at a good rate, uh, must remember it's price earnings. If earnings are growing at a fast pace, that PE is gonna come down mm -hmm. uh, if the price doesn't come, it stays the same where it is. So mm -hmm. uh, it, it's, a rather, it's, it's a matter of looking at the, of course, the, where the price is going, but more importantly, where the earnings are going. And that's the reason why I say you should focus on growth of earnings, what kind of history this company have, but mm -hmm. most importantly, the return on capital. Because right. that will give you an indication of where the company can do, where the company can uh, actually grow. Hmm. So let, let me come back to the, the other point you just made. And again, this is one of the themes in, in, in your recent book, the, the Inflation Myth, which can't give enough of a plug for. Um, so you mentioned that we don't actually know the supply of money in the world. But the one thing we know definitively is this past year, we printed billions upon billions of dollars, and if if we just look at money like dollars or or other kind of developed currencies, we're talking about I think a, like a twenty percent increase in the global money supply. How does that bode for inflation, which is you know uh, the topic that you wrote your recent book about? Do you mind just giving us a little bit of some thoughts on that? Yeah, well, there's no question. With more money in the system, uh, prices will rise on many products. But as I pointed out in the book, two things I pointed in the book. First of all, yes, prices are going up, but wages and salaries and incomes are going up as well. And as I point out in my book, wages and salaries and incomes are rising faster than the prices of goods. Why is that? Well, technology that's being applied to the production of goods and services is creating a deflationary situation where actually so many products are going down in price in, in terms of it, the quality and so forth. So uh, that's one thing. The other thing is I say that don't look at the uh, CPI, the Consumer Price Index, simply because it's a very bad measure. It's not an accurate measure. It, it's based on a basket that is created by interviews with people and as you know, you ask people what they're spending money on, they're not going to tell you that they're spending it on some illicit activity, uh, gaming or liquor or whatever. Uh, so you're actually having a distorted basket to begin with. And then that basket is changing from uh, period to period. So you're, uh, the basket in 1950 is very different from the basket today. So you're comparing apples and oranges. That's why I say it doesn't make sense to even talk about these, uh, these statistics, these CPI numbers. But I don't deny that prices do go up, but that's because of money devaluation. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the other things I point out in the book is that no money in the history of the world has kept its value. All currencies devalue and many just disappear. Now, one of the appeals of Bitcoin and some of these cryptocurrencies is that the inventors say that actually there's going to be a shortage. <laughs> the amount of cryptocurrencies is going down. And that's very appealing to many people who know that 
other currencies, sovereign currencies, are increasing in quantity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm I'm going to dive into cryptocurrencies in two minutes, but like I, I want to just flesh out a couple of concepts that you've uh, you just mentioned. So let's assume uh, that, and I, I think you're right that the measures of inflation and CPI in particular are fundamentally flawed. Um, but if that's the case, how should we be thinking about inflation? Like, um, how should the average person um, be, and, or particularly the average investor, be thinking about the role of inflation in their portfolio or the impact well, of inflation? Yeah, in well, that's very important because, as I pointed out, uh, money loses its value over time. All currencies devalue. So, as an investor, you've got to make sure you're keeping ahead of this devaluation. And the mm-hmm. only way you can do that is by investing in companies uh, whose, uh, whose profits are based on increased uh, prices of their products and services. So what happens is a company that's producing a can of uh, beans or a company that has a software product uh, is increasing these products and services uh, faster than the devaluation that's taking place of the currency. That's the only way to keep up with this kind of situation. Mm-hmm. And, and if you're, if, so, and that, that makes sense certainly in the, in the developed world, but if we look at kind of, again, emerging and frontier markets, I mean, you know, you, you've experienced this, you know, firsthand better than, than I or, or most of us is, you know, you go to some of the various South American countries where you, whether it's Brazil or Venezuela, where, Inflation was in the thousands of percentage points, right? Yeah. The products, no matter how you price those products, you can't keep up. So how have you historically managed and hedged that kind of exposure? Well, what happened, you know, during the period in Brazil and Argentina when uh, inflation was 2,000 or 3,000%, uh, companies uh, either uh, price their goods in dollars or they constantly changed the prices in line with what the uh, the trend in the valuation of the currency was taking place. So if you went, I remember going into a supermarket, excuse me, a supermarket in Brazil, and uh, I noticed on the products they had a tag with a number. I said, what is the price? I said, well, go to that wall. There's a t- table which is constantly changing, and you can get the price. You line up your the number on your product and you get the price at that point. Now, every day they would put in a new list. So that's the way these companies kept up with it. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. Um, and By so- the way, another point, another interesting point is that, you know, I asked my Brazilian friends and colleagues to do a calculation. If I had put money in the bank in, uh, let's say 1980, and it went through all the devaluations up to 1990, 95, or whatever, uh, would I have lost money? The answer was no. Actually, I was breaking even or actually making some money. Why is that? It was because the banks were giving very, very good interest on these deposits. Mm-hmm. So in fact, people, of course, you had to be patient. You had to hang on. <laughs> to all these different uh, devaluations and 
changes in currency. But in fact, if you uh, were there, you would have been at least maintained the value over those years because the banks were constantly increasing interest rates. Right, right. So how, again, it's the, the, since the audience is almost entirely, you know, uh, private investors and family offices, and they're thinking again from a portfolio construct, and even in a deflationary regime, we have seen central banks and governments overshoot their inflation targets and, you know, print out more money. And you've, you've said that eventually all currencies tend to, to uh, inflate. Um, other than cryptocurrency, which is going to be the very next thing I get to, is um, what, you know, what assets would you be investing in to kind of create, if you, you know, you're constructing your own portfolio, what assets are you investing in to hedge out the, any possible risk of, of inflation eating away um, at the re returns and, and even the value of the, of the current uh, portfolios that people have? Well, the first thing you've got to do is don't uh, stick to one country. If you're Canadian, you should not be buying only Canadian companies. You should look globally because, yeah, they're great mines in Canada. They're great companies, but there are many great companies around the world. So you've got to diversify globally. Another reason for doing that is not only will you find more opportunities, but you will not be exposed only to the Canadian dollar. Uh, you'll be exposed to other currencies, which may perform better than the Canadian dollar. And I mean, you've seen recently in many of these emerging countries, even a place like Turkey, <laughs> the Turkish lira has gotten stronger against the US dollar. I mean, this is something that no one would be expecting. So diversification is very important. Now, I'm not saying, you know, you just put in money in any country willy-lilly, but as long as you've done the homework, uh, you're going to do much better if you're working in a global environment. Mm -hmm. and, and how are you viewing, uh, like, commodities in that regime? I mean, we haven't seen massive uh, sort of inflation in commodities, but um, I'm curious how... how how do you uh, position commodities in portfolios? Uh, actually, the only commodity that I, or commodities that I think should be part of the portfolio would be the uh, high value commodities that could be uh, a, a replacement for money. That would be gold, palladium, platinum. Those would be the ones that, you know, make sense to have in your portfolio in physical form. Mm -hmm. Very important to mention that it should be physical form. So that's a kind of a currency. Mm -hmm. And that could be 5%, 10%, and not to worry about the price. Mm -hmm. Just keep that as a long-term uh, value uh, parameter. But you've noticed that recently these commodities have gone up in price. Uh, and uh, so there, many of the mining companies are doing quite well, right. interestingly enough. Right. Okay, so let me now come back to uh, turn the conversation back to cryptocurrencies. So uh, the reason I didn't go there to begin with, because in the past, you know, when I, I've uh, I, I've heard people ask you about Bitcoin, and I, I think you used to say something along the lines of, "I don't talk about religion in public," because <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you felt that it was so much based on either blind faith or believed that there were some Ponzi characteristics to it. So have your views on cryptocurrencies changed, or or Bitcoin in particular? Uh, not really. And by the way, I've met a few billionaires here in Dubai who are uh, cryptocurrency billionaires. Um, and they're very smart people, very nice people. Uh, but uh, uh, 
my view has not changed. In fact, I've got a intern uh, here uh, from, from uh, New York, uh, Cornell University, who is very convinced about cryptocurrencies, but he hasn't convinced me yet. <laughs> I, I mean, it's a matter of faith. I mean, don't misunderstand me. I mean, people have faith in the dollar. I mean, you, you can't go to the US Treasury and count all the dollars. You, know, you can get rough statistics. So uh, it's a matter of faith, but it's also a matter of convertibility. Mm -hmm. uh, because well and good, you know, you create a cryptocurrency and the price in dollars goes up, but then try to convert that with no big cost into money that you can spend on the street or money that you can pay your taxes with. Can't do it. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the big failures of cryptocurrency at this stage. Now, I'm not saying... It's not going to happen. In fact, just today, I read that there was a exchange uh, app where you could trade your uh, cryptocurrencies for dollars or for some currency. But uh, I think this is where you separate the men from the boy, so to speak. Right, right. And so, and earlier you mentioned, and, and maybe I misheard, but I think earlier you mentioned that it's kind of hard to gauge the total money supply in the world because of other other forms of other cryptocurrencies and so on and so forth. You know, I guess my question is, is it's, it's relatively, as you pointed out, relatively nascent, statistically small as, um, so what long, what long-term impact would you imagine cryptocurrencies having on the market? Oh, well, there's a, it's a not only long-term, it's having an impact on the market now. I believe uh, that we've got to watch the price of Bitcoin very carefully because it could be a leading indicator as what's going to happen to the stock market. Because just think about it, you know, there's so many people who've become multimillionaires with Bitcoin, at least on paper, and they believe that uh, they can invest in the stock market. If those prices of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies come down, uh, they're not, not going to feel so rich and thereby may sell stocks in the market. So I think it's very, very important to keep an eye on that uh, going forward and see how this, this develops. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe I gotta ask you, it's just the uh, recently here in Canada, there was a, a Bitcoin a cryptocurrency ETF that was launched. Um, how do you, do you view that changing the dynamic at all? And I think that that will be the first of, I'm sure many. Um, and uh, and I'm I'm actually that just brings up another question that I meant to ask you earlier, um, the the increasing growth of of um, ETFs either emerging market ETFs or country specific ETFs, um, how are you viewing those versus some of the fundamental work that you've historically done in these markets? Are, is is it is is there any reason why somebody can't get most of the exposure through some of those indexed or ETF products? And uh, again. We could talk. We could come back to cryptocurrency in a second, or you could come back to this one afterwards. Just want to hear your thoughts. Yeah, the ETF market is quite remarkable. It's it's amazing how that's developed, and uh, uh, I believe that it's a it's a very good development because it meant that uh, you could easily get exposure, very quickly exposure uh, to indices, to markets, to technologies, whatever. There's an ETF nowadays for almost everything. 
Uh, so it's very convenient for the investor. And uh, I myself have bought ETFs uh, for my personal account because I can't buy individual stocks. So I have to buy funds, um, except my own fund. I, you know, I have a lot of investment in my own fund. But ETFs are really a good vehicle, I would say. And uh, I have nothing against them. It's just an easy way uh, to get exposure to many, many sectors. And if you have an ETF in uh, Bitcoin or some cryptocurrency, why not? I mean, uh, if the assets are there, uh, then there's no reason why it can't be sold. And, and how does it, in terms of, uh, again, coming back to the question of, uh, you know, how do you view that differently than some of the fundamental work that you're doing? Like, what, what are the pros and cons? Like, what are, what are the ETFs or index products not capturing that, that you may be capturing in the work that you guys are doing at, at uh, Mobius Partners? Uh, yeah, because we uh, do not follow the index. If you look at our portfolio, we're very different from any index, whether it be an Asia index, a country index, or whatever. So that's one thing that's that's very very different. Now, of course, there are some actively managed ETFs that manage the portfolio just like we are. We manage actively. The difference with us. Uh, is that we now actively engage with the companies in which we invest. In other words, we try to influence them to improve their ESG and all the rest of it. And it was, there could be other managers that are doing the same thing, but uh, uh, that, that I would say would be the difference. Yeah, that's a significant difference for sure. Um, so let me actually, you know, I hope this is not an unfair question, but you know, I, I, I don't know if it's a secret. I don't think it's a secret. You're, you know, 83 years old, uh, <laughs> sharp and active as ever. And, um, and you have lived and experienced, you know, more than most of us will in 10 lifetimes. <laughs> um, so just with the benefit of this rich experience, what risks uh, or global issues are you most concerned about today? And similarly, you know, what trends or global dynamics are you most excited about today? And we'd love to hear the contrast on, on, on both. Well, it's interesting, it's one and the same actually, because it's all about technology. It's all about the incredible advances made in artificial intelligence. And, uh, and there is a danger and an incredible opportunity. So you have really two parts of the coin, two sides of the coin, so to speak. Um, I see the, I mean, I try to tell young people, you guys are living in the most incredible period of mankind's history. You're so lucky to be living in this period because technology is making things so much better, so much easier, and, and so much more interesting in so many ways. Uh, but then on the other side, there is a danger because if governments, for example, uh, begin to control people's lives, uh, through technology, then it can be really a debilitating factor in the development of civilization. Because remember, remember, the reason why we're making these incredible technological strides is because of creativity and freedom that people have to create new things, new ideas. And if the heavy hand of government and bureaucracy uh, shuts that off, then we're going to be all in trouble. So I would say that, you know, we're in this, in this conundrum where we have to be very careful about the impact of technology on people's lives. 
And um, let me ask you, is, um, you know, given, given how you view the world today, are there any books or people that you credit with having materially shifted or perhaps transformed your worldview? And maybe I could even ask this question a different way, is if we, uh, you know, for us, it's such an honor to have lunch with you, Mark. And I know Thank in you. Dubai, it's not exactly lunch, but um, I, uh, if, if you were having, uh, if you were to have lunches with, with your legend, with your favorite legend, who, who would that be? And, uh, and what, what have you learned from them and, and um, uh, some of your inspirations uh, thus far? Well, you know, although he's passed away, I'd love to have lunch with John Templeton again, because he was, he was a real guru. He was an incredible man. Um, and also, uh, I actually I don't know where, the, where he is now, but uh, John Templeton's partner, uh, who really developed uh, the sales organization for Templeton mm -hmm. and uh, did an incredible job, uh, would be another one. But I would say, if you look at the global situation um, and where I would uh, probably like to sit down with some people uh, would be the young people, the people that are now coming up, uh, the young college students who are now experiencing a whole new way of life that was not my, my way of life when, the, when I was a student. So I would say, you know, sitting down with a group of uh, high school students or college students would be the way I would go. Not necessarily some guru or some world leader, Interesting, uh, interesting. And and um, in terms of the, you know, obviously there's a new way of looking at the world, but in terms of the values that you attribute most of your success to that you would want to pass on to these young people, what are some of those values that notwithstanding their fresh perspective, you know, the values that, that kind of have brought you tremendous success you'd like to see perpetuated? I think, first of all, keep an open mind. Really don't stop learning. Just because you've graduated, uh, your learning should begin from that point because hopefully when you've gone to college or high school, uh, you've learned how to learn. In other words, you learned how to analyze incoming information. So the adventure then begins. That's when you should begin to really become a, a student. Uh, I, I try to keep that in mind all the time. I have to be humble, be willing to accept new ideas, and begin, begin to uh, learn from other people. That's very, very important. So we never have to stop learning. Hmm. Okay, no, that's, that's, that's great and critical reminder. Um, so maybe I'll ask you on slightly related, but a little bit different. And uh, I know we're running out, out of time here. So perhaps this will be the last question to close us out with. And, you know, Thinking about offering a parting piece of advice, you know, as, as your parting words, can you share with us what you think makes someone a great investor? And, and whether it's advice you've received from others, whether it's something you learned along the way, what do you believe are kind of the key ingredients of exceptional uh, allocators of capital um, that all of us on this call could uh, be mindful of going forward? I think it's not only uh, for investors, but it's for everyone in any walks of life, walk of life. And that is uh, to not accept uh, the common knowledge. 
In other words, a willingness to challenge what everyone else believes and a willingness to go your own way uh, and find new opportunities and new ideas. I never forget what John Temple used to say to us. He said, to buy when others are despondently selling and to sell when others are greedily buying creates the greatest rewards, mm-hmm. but requires the greatest fortitude. Mm-hmm. And that's really sums it up very nicely because basically you've got to uh, be willing to go against the grain. You've got to be willing to go against what other people are thinking or believing or acting upon. But that does not mean you close your mind to what they're saying and they're thinking. You, you observe all this, but then you've got to be willing to strike out on your own, in your own path. I think that's a sign of a really great investor and basically a great innovator, great businessman. Right. Well, uh, Mark, that was just fabulous. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you for sharing your incredible insights with us. And I can't tell you how much we appreciate your generosity of time and wisdom and certainly hope to do it again soon. Thank you for joining us today. We are grateful to each of you and to each of the generous sponsors that made today's program a reality. As a reminder, 100% of the proceeds from Lunches with Legends supports pediatric mental health, improving the lives of children and families in our communities. If you haven't already, please consider donating and supporting our efforts by visiting luncheswithlegends.com. Finally, to get exclusive access to our family office events, and our annual conference, make sure to subscribe to our mailing list on the Prime Quadrant website, which you can access by visiting primequadrant.com.